right. Good morning. The early bird gets the worm. Welcome to the nine o'clock service. Great to see you this morning. Thanks for coming. Um, it's been a great morning already. You know, you can always tell the atmosphere of a place um, by how they worship. You know, I've been in a lot of churches. I've visited and traveled and been to different churches, preached in different churches, just went to attend different churches. And you can always tell where a church is at based on the atmosphere of worship. And I just love how our team leads us every single week and just goes in with so much passion and so much strength. Can we thank God for the team this morning, our worship team? We honor you guys. Em was up here prophesying over Buffalo while she was singing. I just felt it. It's been a uh, crazy week, great week, challenging week, ups and downs, I'm sure, just like any other week. Um, as many of you know, this has been an incredible week for the church because one football player gets injured and all of a sudden the whole world starts to be okay with prayer. You know, we took it out of our schools, but we didn't take it out of our professional stadium, so I'm okay with that, man of God. But what a, what a week it's been just to be a Christian, just to have some faith. Um, this week, my wife and I, we've had just one of the we had one of the greatest breakthroughs in our ministry this week. And uh, I'll be able to share some news with you as the day gets closer. We have our board meeting. We got stuff coming up, but just great things happened this week for our church and what's next for us. And within the course of 24 hours, there was like three or four things that came directly against that. And both of us, we're not sick, but like most of our voices went out this week. Um, this week, we just had some random things pop up. And I just thought, you know, the devil gets mad when God starts doing something good. Be very nervous when people stop talking about you because that means you're not doing anything. I'm okay with a few haters and a few critics as long as God is still working and building his church. And uh, it's an incredible thing to be in the house of God this morning. So I want to jump right into the word, though. If you got your Bible, go with me to Psalm 115. Psalm 115 is where we're at today. And if you're new to church, new to gospel, welcome. My name's Billy. Alongside my wife, Randy, we get to be the pastors of this place. And, uh, we're getting ready to celebrate one year at the end of this month of ministry. So make sure you come out on the 29th. We're going to show you a whole recap of how the year went and what God's been doing. But we, uh, we believe church is less about tradition and more about a person. So today we want to try to encounter a person and his name is Jesus. And so you'll find out right away we're Jesus people. We love them. You know, we can get loud about so much else. I think why not be loud about something that's actually eternal? And all the early people said, Amen. Psalm 115. We're going to read eight verses of scripture this morning. So if you haven't done your Bible reading in a while, this counts. Um, we are jumping into an interesting time where in our culture, there is so much focus on all these other things that I think God's really been challenging me lately to prioritize his presence again and to really kind of make sure we know that like he's the main thing. And so uh, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to start a collection of messages on idols and uh, for the next six or seven weeks, probably, we're going to study the different Old Testament idols and how those idols that Israel worshiped are actually still around today. And how we, the church, have to know how the enemy works so we know how to kind of combat against him. And so I know somebody didn't want me to preach this message today, but I've got a word um, and I think it's going to help us. All right. When you're ready, say I'm ready. Psalm 115 it says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. And for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness, why should the nation say, where's their God? Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths 
but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. Ears, but do not hear. They have hands, but do not feel. Oh, don't forget the nose. They got noses, but do not smell. Hands don't feel feet, but they don't walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Here it is, verse 8. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. This is a worship song. This is Psalms. This is the book of Psalms we're reading. And the writer says, those who make idols become just like them. So today we're starting a collection of messages on idols. And I don't have a clever sermon title or anything. It's just called Idols Part One. Let's pray. Father, help us. Reveal to us what we need to work on this morning. We just want to encounter you in these pages. Uh, Thank you for the spirit of unity. We don't always have to be right, but you do command us to be unified. And so today we unify our hearts, one heart, one soul, as we lean into your word this morning. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Turn to somebody next to you. Say, it's time to tear it down. It's time to tear it down. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a question that I'd like to start my message with today. And it's not rhetorical. I'd like you to actually answer. The question is, have you ever done something stupid? (laughs) We're off to a good start. I've done many stupid things in my life, but particularly one comes to mind, stupid or silly, whatever you want to say. Um, One silly thing comes to mind. When I was uh, 16 years old, I uh, started uh, hanging out with some friends in high school, and and I got invited uh, to go hang out with a group of friends one day. Now, I wasn't driving at the time. I didn't have my license yet. And my dad was at work, but he had left his extra car at our house. And my friend was like, man, you need to come. Like, we're all hanging out. And I'm like, man, I don't have a ride. And he says, well, doesn't your dad have that car there? Just take the car down there. And I'm like, no, I surely couldn't do that. And he said, hey, well, there might be some girls here. And I said, okay, I'll probably try to do that then. So I went out and I took my dad's car and and drove it from my house to my friend's house. And I got down to the first stop sign and I had driven around a parking lot before, you know, but like I turned to right at the stop sign and I just said, I'm feeling like I'm so confident. I just floored it. And as I'm coming straight to the next stop sign, there was a police officer on a a motorcycle with a speeding gun right there, just got me, pulled me over, came up to me and said, license and registration, please. And I said, yeah, I don't have that. He says, well, did you leave it somewhere? Did you forget it? And I was like, No, I've never actually gotten one of those. And it was that day that I got my dad's car impounded and uh, one of the more stupid things that I've done. Now, what's interesting is we don't really feel bad when we're doing stupid things, do we? Because the most frightening part of that story was not when the cop pulled me over, not when they told me that the car was going to be impounded. The most frightening part of the story was when I was waiting at home for my dad to come home. And there was this thing in me that did not want to confront what I had actually done wrong. I think there's things in a a lot of us that we don't mind making mistakes when we're actually making them. The part that really throws us off is when we have to deal with the consequences of them. If you think about it, any mistake you've made in your life, usually in the moment, it seemed like a good idea. It seemed like something that, you know, maybe we can make it work. I mean, hey, my dad got a car. I'm 16. You know, I can make this work. Everything will be fine. But it's not until later that we have to confront and actually deal with what we did wrong <laughs> that we deal with the consequences. 
Psalm chapter 115 is a very interesting passage of scripture because it starts with saying, not to us, God, should we get glory, but to you we give glory. And there's a moment in the psalm where it all of a sudden shifts. David says, you know, our God's in the heaven. He does what he does. He pleases. And then he says, their idols are silver and gold. So what David says is, I've got this picture of God, but my enemies have an idea of security in somewhere else. And a lot of times, like what we do is we can make idols out of things without actually knowing we're doing it. We don't really think about it until we're confronted with the truth of our actual God, the one that actually does what he pleases. Uh, The word idol is simply, we're gonna define idolatry like this in this series. Idolatry is seeking security and meaning in something or someone other than God. Okay, let's just call it what it is. Idolatry is when I find more security in something else than God. Insert whatever you want. Food can become an idol if you glorify it more than God himself. Your career can become an idol. Remember for a season, I was working in hospitality and was working for the Marriott and just had this idea that one day I was gonna be a general manager and I was just stepping over whoever I could get. You know, yeah, that valet, he was late. You should put me in promotion. And I was just doing whatever I could to try to find a sense of, I'm gonna be a GM one day and I'm gonna make a bunch of money. How many know God had other plans? But when we find security in what we do or we find security in our, our possessions, they easily walk the line of idolatry. It's idolatry when it's handcrafted. You know what I'm saying? Like, what's an idol? It's something you make to give yourself security. An idol is when you rest more on your gift and your talent than the one that gave it to you. An idol can be when I'm more into preaching the word than I am in love with the one who is the word. Idolatry is not just like this subtle thing. Sometimes people overnight can idolize something. Sometimes it's a slow steady decline into idolatry. Uh, Your marriage can become an idol. As long as my wife is happy, forget if I'm doing something wrong. I've got to make her happy. And my whole sense of meaning and security only comes from if she's happy. That's idolatry. So there's seasons in our life where we're tempted with blatant idolatry. And then there's other seasons where it's kind of like, we don't know that it's happening. The simplest way to put it is an idol is something that has the appearance, but it has no substance. Oh, that was good. So an idol has the appearance of giving me happiness. And it looks like it's going to give me satisfaction, but there's no substance. You know, you remember before you got saved and you would go out and just party or get blackout drunk or just go out there and just get, get, get that idea that like, if I just do this, I'll find happiness. But then the next morning, where's that substance? Oh, I feel terrible. I don't feel good. And we try to find meaning in these things that aren't eternal. Your life has an eternal void in it. There's something in your heart that wants eternity. This is why Ecclesiastes chapter three says, God has put eternity in the heart of man. That when he made us, he made us to ache for something that's bigger than just this life. So idolatry is when we try to find meaning and satisfaction in in the appearance of something without the substance of it, okay? The Bible warns us that we would be in a time that there are idols and there's idolatry. Second Timothy chapter three says it like this, and this is speaking of the end times. This is talking about our current culture. This is second Timothy chapter number three, starting in verse one. The apostle Paul uh, is, he's probably the most important, besides Jesus, the most important New Testament figure we have, okay? He's not Jesus. Sometimes people make Paul out to be the most important thing. You're just like Paul, okay? Like, in a sense, he was an apostle. He's called by God. I don't want to disrespect that. 
but the same thing that he was doing, we can walk in that today. That's what I believe. Okay, so Jesus, everyone else. Paul's important though, because he wrote some important theology about what we believe today. And 2 Timothy is his final letter. Everyone say final. He's writing this in a jail cell and uh, the emperor Nero is actually gonna behead him moments later. This is kind of like his final thoughts. He's writing to his son, Timothy, and he's telling him some important things. And second to last chapter, he says, but understand this. Okay, don't, let you, don't miss this. Understand this. Really grasp this, okay? That in the last days, there will be times of difficulty. How many feel that? It's going to be hard in the last days. For people will be lovers of self. They will be lovers of money. They will be proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous. In the last days, you'll know it's the last days because people are just going to slander each other for no reason. Without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Here it is, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We're getting to an age where we're going to make decisions based on what's more convenient rather than what's in covenant. And we choose convenience over covenant. Continues on, verse 5, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And Paul's advice to us about those people is avoid such people. Well, what about like love? And, you know, aren't we supposed to be around sinners? Yeah, there's a line, though. And once I start crossing into some things that are borderline idolatrous, I don't care if we're friends. I'm not going there. I I don't care if you're inviting me over. I don't hang out in those environments because it reminds me of this truth. Okay, can I go deeper? Come on, 9 a.m. It says, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. So what that means is in the last days, there's going to be a lot of people that appear godly, but they don't give credit to God. So there's going to be a lot of people that say, just be a good person. Well, how do you be a good person? Oh, that's inside you. Well, they're having the appearance of godliness, but they're denying the power. Okay? Go even further. Godliness gives you power. That when we follow the ways of God and we're in alignment with his word, I got to tell you, you know, there's a season where I fell out of my rhythm of reading the Bible, praying. You start to feel it. You know, you go a week without just having time with God. You feel like powerless. But when you're in the word, you're around community, you're not giving up on things. God gives you that power. Are you with me? I got to try to save my voice. I want to start preaching. But this is the truth of the day and age we're in. People will appear like good people, but they don't give glory to God. So the best thing that we can do in the last days is when we get the award or we get the promotion or we get the relationship or we get the thing we're praying for is saying it's because of God. But we pick that apart too much when someone does that. You know when like an actor gets up there and says, give glory to Jesus. You know what we do is, he's not really saved. And we go, wait a minute. He just said in front of 20 million people, glory to Jesus. Who cares? The name of Jesus just went over the airways. Can we just be thankful that in the last days, you're still seeing coaches come across the field to pray together. You're still seeing people say, forget what people think. We need the glory of God. So they're going to have the appearance. According to their life, being a good person will get them into heaven. But God says, unless you show that I'm the one that gives power, it's not going to happen. Here's what Tim Keller says about idols. He says, when anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness, 
and self-worth, it's essentially an idol. It's something you're worshiping. So everybody worships. The question is who? You know, people come in and they say, oh, man, the part of the service is really weird for me is worship. And I go, why? And they're like, well, you know, it's just, just to like sing and lift my hands or jump and stand. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, but I've been to like concerts and stuff and I do that for music. It doesn't even mean anything. So help me understand that. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's not an appearance thing. We all worship something. When we come into church and you see someone lift their hands, what they're saying is I'm choosing you above everything else. New Year's Day, a lot of everyone came to church. I'm putting you first. God, I'm putting you there. And uh, we're pushing back that idea of idolatry. So Tim Keller says, you know, essentially anything that's a requirement for your happiness is an idol. Now, in the Old Testament and in the New, idolatry was common throughout Israel. You know, when, when Moses and, the, and, the, and the, uh, the Israelites came into the promised land, remember, God told them, there's a bunch of nations here that I need you to drive out. Because they worship different gods than us. And they believe success is a different thing than us. And so God says, when I bless you, I don't want you just to come in. I need you to come in and kick them out. Too many Christians want the benefits of God's blessing without cleaning house of their own things. So they're like, God, bring me in. And he's like, okay, I brought you in. But I don't bring you to your destiny just to chill. Did you hear that? God told Moses, I'm going to bring you into the promised land. And when you get there, you're going to have to fight. We don't preach that part. We just tell people, you're coming into the promised land. You're getting out of the wilderness. And then once they get there, they don't know what to do. So the reason why we're starting this year with a series on idols is because this year, this church is going to grow in ways that I can't even imagine. But you best believe there's going to be decisions that need to be made as new people come in, as false ideologies come in, as false idols are worshipped in this area. We as a church have to know we're staying committed to the true thing. Okay, so I want to go one by one real quickly through some of these idols. And my thought is, if the Lord allows us, we'll go each week on one of these and we'll show how God is a better choice than that one. Okay, so let's go over the first one. Here's some Old Testament idols that I want you to get. And uh, the first one that we see in Judges chapter 2 and 1 Kings chapter 11 is Ashtoreth. Everyone say Ashtoreth. Now, Ashtoreth is the Canaanite god. She's the goddess of fertility and maternity. Okay, and Ashtoreth is, is different forms they would, they would have them, but it was common if you were an idol worshiper, you would have like a little carved image of Ashtoreth that you would keep with you. And as you went town to town and it was time for you to pray, if you were in need of a child and you were barren, you would pull out that Ashtoreth, you would put it there and you would pray to it. And throughout the, the New Testament, uh, we see Paul making references to like sensuality. He talks about like the Corinthian gods and he talks about like all the, the, the lust and stuff that goes on in them. They all originated from Ashtoreth. She, she's that goddess of sex. She's that God that says, you know, just do what you feel is right. And yet she still leads people astray. The next God that we see in the Old Testament is Baal. Now y'all know Baal probably uh, from the story of Elijah, which is 1 Kings 18, but Baal is mentioned throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Baal is the Canaanite God of fertility and crops. Now here's the thing about Baal. Baal started off as just a fringe Israelite idol. Like a couple fringe Israelites were worshiping him. By the time Solomon is king of Israel, he actually, he actually makes Baal worship a part of their central government. This is how quickly idolatry gets into the church. Solomon, the Bible calls him the wisest man that ever lived. 
But yet at one point, he came up with legislation that would allow Baal worship in the town and in the government. So subtly, idols can slip in. You know, Solomon's problem was uh, those women. Yeah, how many concubines did he have? It was like 900, 300 wives, something like that. You best believe they're coming with some baggage. And that's how the infiltration of idolatry happens. Sometimes it's just subtly through your friends. Well, I don't want them to feel left out. It's like, well, you know, you can invite them, but once you start seeing the idol worship, put some boundaries up. Know that that's not the way that God's called you to live. Let's continue. Kamosh is the next one. Uh, This is the Moabite God. The one with Kamosh was very interesting because this involved human sacrifice. And there was Moabites that actually would sacrifice humans to try to please Kamosh. Uh, There's a story in 2 Kings 23 where, again, the Israel government starts messing with Kamosh. He actually gets some legislation as well. And they start telling all of God's people, oh, yeah, worship Yahweh. You can worship Kamosh as well. He's cool. Uh, Let's go to the next one. Dagon. This is early by the Amorites and then by the Philistines. And uh, Dagon is the god of uh, water and grain. Dagon was a fish body with a human head and human arms. And the Bible says that when uh, uh, David, when, when, when the Ark of the Covenant was stolen by the Philistines, they took it and they put it in the Dagon temple. The next day, you can read about it in 1 Samuel 5. The next day, the Philistines came in and the Dagon statue had fallen on the ground. So they were like, what? They put it back up. They left the Ark of the Covenant in there, which is God's, Yahweh's presence. They leave again and Dagon fell again, but this time his head came off and his arms came off. And so in the part of our series, we're gonna break down a little bit more of that story and show you how that God kind of works his way into our system as well. Let's move on to the Egyptian gods. And I say gods because there was a total over 2,000 deities that the Egyptians worshiped. And so while Moses and Israel is enslaved by Egypt, there's over 2,000 gods they're praying to. And, 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 and you could break that down today that just people can't seem to make their mind up anymore about what they call deity. And so it's like they add things in without even considering it. The golden calf is the uh, more famous idol. We all know about that one. The Israelites wanted a God. Now they already have Yahweh, but they couldn't touch him. They couldn't feel him. So they told Aaron, make Yahweh into an image like the other nations. And you know how that ended. It wasn't very good. Moses was so upset about the golden calf, he broke the Ten Commandments, broke them in half. He was so angry. A couple hundred years later, one of the, Solomon, he actually, or not Solomon, it was Jeroboam, he builds the golden calf again. So we'll break down that in the series as well. Two more real quick, and then we'll give you some points to close. Uh, The next one is Marduk. Marduk's only mentioned one time in scripture, but he is the chief God of the Babylonians. When you look at Babylonian history, he was the main guy. So there's Baal and all these other worships, but Marduk was like at the top. And uh, he was the God of fertility as well as vegetation. So let's sacrifice to him to get our crops to grow. And then here's the last one, probably the most controversial one is Milcom. Now Milcom has different names. He's also known as Molech, and he's also known as Milok. Uh, Same idea of gods. And this is the one where there was actually sorcerers Uh, This is where like modern day spiritualism can be combated to, that they were actually doing like magic back in those days. And then Milcom was one of the only Old Testament gods that actually required child sacrifice. And again, you know, it's just one of those things we have to be aware of. In today's age, the same kind of stuff stirs up, but we're going to jump into this God as well and try to figure out where God is at with all of them. The point of that is to know that all these things in the Old Testament are not just history book God's like, I'm not one of those weird pastors that's like, you know, there's people doing human sacrifices now. 
You know, maybe, probably, like I don't doubt it, but that's not where I'm going with this series. What I'm going with this series is there is modern day versions of these Old Testament gods that fall into our hearts. And without even noticing it, we don't sacrifice people like physically, but we're willing to give up a relationship and never talk to someone again for the sake of a preconceived notion we have. We, 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 we want to be blessed and we want vegetation or we want increase. And so we think that if we appease others that we'll get the things we need and we depend on someone else besides God. Don't wiggle out of this message and think, well, I'm not an idol worshiper. These next six weeks aren't for me. No, my friend, in our communities, these same principles are there. People are putting something else before God. You've heard me talk about politics. Politics are important, but they're not ultimate. I love sports. Sports are important. The last week, you saw how sports can easily not even matter when it's about the people that play the sports. Okay, I understand money's important. Okay, money's gonna play a role, all right, in who we are. But in the last days, it didn't say those that have money are the cursed ones. It says those that are lovers of money. The root of all evil is not money. It's the love of money. So I don't care. Anything, even this pastor up here in front of you can make something an idol. We ought to have those hearts that know I got to pause, stop, and look to God for that direction. So how do I, what do I do if I have idols in my life? Like, where do I start? I want to give you three steps to how to repent from idols. Three steps to repent from any sin in your life. Because as I was on my way back home, that police officer put me in the backseat of the car as my dad's car was getting towed away. And I'm riding to my house waiting to hear what my dad is going to think. I was rehearsing all the things that I wanted to say. I didn't mean to, it was my friend, he made me do it. I wasn't thinking, I wasn't, you know, and I started rehearsing all these things without actually ever letting it hit my heart. So three ways to repent from idols. Number one, first thing is contrition. This is how it has to start. And you know you're ready to repent when you have contrition. This means the natural pride and self-sufficiency has been humbled by that consciousness of guilt, okay? You know somebody is ready to change when they feel bad about what they've been doing. That's the first step. It's got to start with contrition. Like, ah, I did this to Randy the other day. We were talking about something and and she came down and said something and I just like said something really sarcastic to her. I was like, yeah, like every other time you're like, and she was just like, wow, okay. And I was like, yeah, whatever. And she left and then, you know, an hour went by and she went into work and like we're talking. And then later I I genuinely was like, I shouldn't have just, I shouldn't. I shouldn't have been sarcastic with it. Like there's times to be sarcastic with your spouse, but that probably wasn't one of them. <laughs> but, but, but hear me, it starts with, oh, I was wrong. And I bring, our, I bring our little spats into this because I want you to know, we actually try to practice this. Like I'm not telling you something I'm not trying, okay? Like I myself had to go, oh, that was wrong. So it starts with contrition. Let me give you a scripture on this. The Bible says in Psalm 51, okay, now, Let me tell you something about Psalm 51. We still got time. Psalm 51 is the story about what King David did, what he prayed uh, after he had an affair. Yes, that David. Yes, the one that killed Goliath. Yes, the king of Israel. Um, He had an affair. And then the woman that he had an affair with, he had her husband killed. And you don't think God can use you. So David... 2 Samuel 11, 
he's the king, and it says that it was the time for kings and warriors to go out to war. So all of the army goes out to war, and the Bible says, but David stayed behind. See, anytime you're not where you're supposed to be, you're that much more likely to get tempted. David was supposed to be on the battlefield fighting, but he just slowly kind of just, uh, no, I'll stay home. And he goes on his roof one night, and he looks across the way, and he sees a woman bathing, and he ends up having an affair. And he gets caught in a pretty radical way. A prophet divinely comes to him and basically tells him, you sinned, and uh, he's going to pay the price for it. He's going to pay the price for what he did. But let's see what he prays after. He prays, oh Lord, create in me a clean heart. And then we get to verse 15 and it says, oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice. Okay, I had an affair, but you, you don't care if I just come and say, okay, I'll give it all up for you. He goes, you don't delight in my sacrifice when I've sinned. Okay, that, that, that's, that's not what your delight is. It's required, but it's not a delight. He said, or else I would give it. And you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. You want to know the sacrifices that work when you're idol worshiping or when you're in sin is, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. You will not despise. So you know what pleases God when you come to him broken? And say, I messed up. I messed up. You don't need to try to make amends right away. You don't need to tell us everything you're going to do to repay it. Just sit in the fact that you messed up and you can sit in that. It's the first step. To repentance. You just got to feel it. Got to be okay with feeling it. Let's go to the second thing. After you feel contrite and contrition, the second thing is confession. And confession is the secret's over. You have verbally told somebody what you've done. Now, if you were raised Catholic, you were taught that you probably had to go do this on the other side of like a wall or like a little screen and you have to do this a certain amount of times. And that comes from a biblical place. That, that, that like, I don't want to bash Catholics here. Like confession is a great thing. The fact that it has to be a certain person is where it gets a little weird. Because I believe that if you confess to anyone, if you confess to someone in your relationship with, it starts that process of, it keeps that process of repentance going. Are you following me? How about some Bible on it? James chapter five says this, therefore confess your sins to your priest. No, confess your sins to one another. Confess your sins to each other and pray for one another. Don't just talk what you did, but pray about it that you may be healed. Now, I talked to somebody recently about this and they were telling me about, uh, you know, some sin in their life. And this person has a platform just like me and he was telling me the sin in his life. And it was, just, it was a great moment just to kind of talk. And, and he says, you know, it took me so long to tell you. He goes, because I had talked to God about it and I felt okay about it. And I said, well, it's funny because when you confess to God, he forgives you. Amen. It says if you confess, he's faithful and just to uh, forgive you. But it says when we confess to one another, we don't get forgiven. What's it say? Can you put it back? James 5, 17. It says, pray for one another that you may be what? Healed. So you want forgiveness from God. That's great. But you'll still feel off until you tell someone else. That's why we have small groups. You don't have to tell me. Like, I, I know in this area too, like some people just with pastors, it's like an authority thing and they get around a pastor and it's like, oh, hey, pastor, hey, you, you don't got to confess to me. Go confess to your friends. Tell somebody though. I need you to tell somebody. I mean, there's things going on in our church that people come to me and say, hey, have you heard about this? And I'm like, no. And they go, well, this person's really going through this. And I go, okay, I know they're small group. 
And I know the small group leader has them and they're probably aware of it. Oh yeah, they've already been working with them. I'm like, great, thank you for telling me. But I'd rather have a place where there's confession happening all the time so that when we come together, we're healed. Are you following? So next week is small group Sunday. All across the campus, you'll see group leaders that have band, uh, name tags on. It'll say the day of the week their group is. It'll say the time that their group meets so that if you see them, you can ask them right there. I wanna come to your group. Because we don't just do groups to do groups. We do groups because we need a place to talk and confess to one another. Confession is a good thing, y'all. At the end of every day, just do a quick inventory. Is there anything today that I just need to get off my chest, need to talk to someone about? Because every night that we go to sleep carrying something that's been unconfessed, it grows and it grows and it grows. So we need confession. And lastly, number three, these are the steps to true repentance. Confession, I'm sorry, contrition, confection, and then number three, satisfaction. And satisfaction is not like, oh, you're satisfied. It means the error has now been satisfied by your actions. Does this make sense? So after there is sin, there's a wrong. There's a debt that has to be taken care of. And when we are contrite, and we confess, and we put our faith back in the gospel of Jesus, now we're satisfied, uh, God's satisfied. That means our actions make amends, but it also means we change our behavior. We don't, we don't talk about this too much. Um, there was a story where this, this uh, woman is caught sleeping with another man, and these religious leaders drag her into the street and put her down at the feet of Jesus and they kind of test him. And Jesus defends her. It's an awesome moment of him defending. But after everyone leaves, he looks at the woman and he says, where are your accusers? She goes, they're not here. And he tells her this, go and sin no more. So he doesn't just show her grace because she sinned. He gives her instructions on how to go and not do that anymore. We gotta preach this, y'all. Repentance isn't just feel bad, tell somebody. Repentance is feel bad, tell somebody, and then what do I need to change? Come on, it's a new year. We didn't change enough last year. What this, it's seven days in. What do I need to change? How do I satisfy the, the errors I've made? It starts with my heart and then my mouth, and then it starts with what I do. Now, don't miss, don't, don't, you know, don't miss it here. What you do does not save you. If you're here today and you don't have an actual relationship with Jesus, this isn't going to make any sense. Because you know that salvation only comes through belief in Jesus. It comes by grace, through faith, and in Him. But once we know Him, we have to take responsibility for ourselves. We, we can't just show up every week and just think, He accepts me as I am. He accepts me as, he, as I am. He accepts you, but He actually believes that you can go further. And that starts with us taking ownership for things. Second Chronicles says this, and, and, and this is where I'll, I'll kind of wrap up. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. This, this is the nation of Israel at the time when things weren't really going that well. And this is God's command. You want to change your nation? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and they will pray and they will seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. If they will repent, if they will turn, let's see what God will do. If they return, it says this, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. 
that's satisfaction. Now that we've turned, God says, okay, I can work with someone like this. As the old hymn says, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. See, God is satisfied when we repent because he was satisfied by Jesus' sacrifice. Sin separates us from God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, meaning a life that sins is just a life that leads to death, no sense of life or meaning or purpose. And so when we recognize that Jesus paid that price, the wrath that we deserved, because God's a holy God, just God, the wrath that we deserved was satisfied in him. That's the good news of the gospel. We live in his death so that one day we die through his life. That's wild, huh? Today you can live because of his death so that one day when you die, you will have eternal life.